Hello, my name is Deidre Shu, and I will be having a conversation with Rosewood for the New York Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered around the experiences of trans identifying people. It is November 25th, 2018, and this is being recorded at Rose's studio in Chelsea, Manhattan. Tell me your name and your age if you'd like. My name is Rose Corey. Uh, I also live by the name Rose Wood as a professional name. And my age is 61 and three quarters years old. When and where were you born? I was born March 7th, 1957 in Somerville, New Jersey. What are your preferred gender pronouns? Well, I prefer she. Uh, but if, let's say, if somebody sees me and it pops into their mind, he, I, I don't argue with them. And tell me about yourself. What's, what's your logline? How, how would you be described, or how would you like yourself to be described to others? I guess I prefer to be known first as an artist, which is uh, a profession and an, also a kind of honorarium. Like a doctor likes to be called doctor. It's nice to be known as an artist. It's something you don't say, I'm an artist, or you're not. It's something that you achieve. And how long have you been working as an artist? What kind of an artist are you? How would you describe your work? I'm a performer, performance artist. I combine theater and story, storytelling theater and, yeah, combine storytelling and theater. It's oriented to a particular audience an adult audience in a cabaret setting. There's usually the influence of alcohol and or other substances. With my work I have to be able to penetrate that haze, speak a, a language that people in that condition are, will listen to. And how did you find your work in that setting or what led you to that? I'd been looking for uh, I found myself in a setting where I could work very, uh, uh, work continuously and work frequently continuously and have a very stable work environment where I could be addressing the same type of audience night after night rather than doing a show here or a show there. I found that I'm in the same venue five nights a week. I was able to have a consistent relationship with a particular group and it helped me develop uh, my way to communicate with them. I had experience in the past uh, for, of, for instance performing in a children's prison when I was growing up. By repetition, by being in the same environment, you learn how best to communicate with your audience. And so I found a similar setting here, though not a prison, having a, a context and a space where I was able to develop a, a, a language that we both understood. You and I know that you're speaking specifically about one venue. Mm -hmm. And so would you like to, do you feel comfortable specifically oh, naming yeah. that venue? Or would you like to speak more about nightlife performance in general? Well, um, the, the venue is The Box. Where is The Box? The Box is on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And it started 
in 2007, uh, with an orientation being for celebrities, the wealthy, privileged theater art crowd. We didn't know if it would be a year or two years, and here, we, here it's now almost 12. So it's a very specific crowd. It was a moneyed, privileged, and cultured crowd. Uh, what they wanted was not standard bar entertainment, which was tended to be uncurated and of a lower quality. They wanted variety. So uh, it, it was a very, uh, very, very specific orientation that the venue had. How do you fit into that? How does your work and your mission as an artist? I fit into this because they wanted, a ver they wanted variety and they had plenty of dancing girls and plenty of singing girls and da dancing and singing men and they didn't have anybody who was trans. How does it fit in with your mission? Oh, I was interested in doing things that were powerful, emotionally powerful and or shocking. Uh, I wanted to smack the crowd. I wanted to do things with impact. And they weren't really looking for that. But they discovered that the effect of it was very positive on the room. They found that by putting in somebody who caused a kind of explosion in the room, that it, it broke down boundaries between people and that people started talking with each other. And so while the, owner, the owners in particular weren't fond of seeing what I did so much, they liked what happened to the evening. And so uh, I became a fixture there and became, in fact, the, the, the longest running performer there. How do you understand gender? To me, gender is, is there's male and female as the two clear, I, I don't have a good model for it that I could say there's just one or the other because you, our science has been oriented to a, a you know a kind of religious standpoint and and social standpoint. We have male and female. We have you know which is something chromosomal and but you have the the possibility to I think scientifically there are two genders, but I don't think that that limits how one is able to live one's life or gender is is just the the plainest driest most scientific way to look at human expression it's like saying there's black and white but if you look at a black and white photograph you see endless shades of gray so yes there's black and white but you don't see the, the, those are just the, what to say, scientific terms that you rarely see in some pure form that it's usually the mix that means something to people. I'm a little hard pressed, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge subject for me. Yeah. So how would you describe your gender and or its evolution? Well, I was born, born male and uh, lived my, most of my early life as male. I didn't have a very male identity except when put into social settings. 
in my privacy, I didn't really see myself as being anything because I was more involved in, in ideas and, and feelings and less in, in terms of, I think gender is a, a socially recognizable expression. I don't think that it's something particularly privacy in private. I, I didn't sit in my room alone and say I'm a boy or I'm a girl. When did you first become aware of gender or that your feelings didn't align with societal expectations? As a teenager, I was difficult. This is, this is very difficult. I, I was, I have to look backwards to see where reconstruct because um, later in my life my father told me that that he and my mother were aware that when I was very young that something was not not right I was very female by nature when I was and by at a very young age they said well this is a very female character uh, who's, a, a bo who's a boy. We're going to have to make him a man. So they put me in everything possible to enhance uh, male quality and to give me a male identity. So I was put into sports and martial arts and all these things that I didn't feel comfortable with. I was always saying, but Dad, I don't want to do this stuff. He says, well, we're going to have to put you in girls' gym. And that was a bad thing. And so I didn't want a, that bad thing, although it made more sense. You know, I'm on the boys' team and then doing boys' things, and so you say, I'm a boy. And I, I mean, I, so, so much of my life I was put into social things, you know, sports and games and activities that were male. What years were... Are you talking about then? Let's let's give it some context. I guess it really started just pre pre puberty, from the time that I was about 10, 10, 11 years old, till I left home. I was put into very male activities. So this was the nineteen seventies. In the sixties uh, and seventies, and uh, you know, when asking my father later on about this, he said there, he didn't really see you know in the fifties when I was born and. The early 60s, there weren't any other options. That was just what seemed to be the best thing to do. And you left New Jersey and came to New York? Yeah. Okay. I left New Jersey, uh, which was very, uh, I, I don't want to say homophobic, but because um, it just wasn't possible to be. You, you can't be, couldn't be gay in New Jersey in the early 70s and 60s and 70s. It's, you kind of would be cast out. And I was already suspected that something was wrong, quote, I say wrong, because uh, different women, girls, wanted to date me and I didn't want to, to date. So uh, the boys were always saying, you must be gay. I didn't want to say that because that would have been fight, would have meant that I would have had fights. The best thing was to wait and get out. And so I left in 1975, and I landed in New York in the height of the disco era. 
so uh, gender neutral and androgyny and and costume and drag was all wonderful then. And so did you dive into that culture? Where did you hang out? What did you do? Yeah, I went right into it. Shortly, uh, right around the time that Studio 54 started, I was already kind of had, had enough of that. And uh, punk rock was happening. So I jumped into punk rock. By the end of the very end of the 70s, 19, December 31st, 1979, I was so saturated with drugs that I decided to leave club culture. I really needed a kind of a life detox. Was, was club culture your, your early encounters with the trans community? Yeah. It was still uh, back in the 70s, mid-70s. Um, trans was still was quite radical and subversive. When I came to New York in the 70s and I would walk on Christopher Street late at night, I would occasionally see a drag queen. To me, there was a, always a mood of danger. It still felt like, ooh, there's drugs, there's sex, there's potential violence. And uh, it was very subversive to see somebody in drag on the street. How Didn't, were you dressing then? I was dressing... Uh, I guess you could say, and more in androgyny, costumey. There's a, a look, a disco culture, glam rock culture. I was kind of like co combination glam rock, disco with platform shoes and and big hair, you know. And um, and how were you identifying then? Hard to say because uh, you know, um, then you're. Your look was relative to your musical preferences. It was kind of like disco, glam rock. Looking female was still very male. Was very was a very male thing. The male rock stars were all looking like you know wearing makeup and and looking wearing women's clothing. So that was still a kind of a male identity. Emotionally, were you identifying more? Were you moving away from male? Were you feeling a kind of non-binary, like you didn't fit into either, or...? It, it was still male, uh, you know, kind of... How to describe this? People, when they saw you, saw you dressed in that kind of uh, polygender, mixed-gender, glam-rock look of being um, this blend of male and female, there wasn't so much of a a sexual identity with it as much as the, uh, um, you know, cultural, music, disco, glam rock, that sort of thing. It was around that time that, uh, you know, for me that was also a time of lots of, of drugs, of, of everything I could get my hands on. So from there I pulled away from all of, from, from it all, because uh, I had to distance myself from all of that whole culture. And I went into a very, uh, trying to be as opposite as I could from that whole time. I grew a beard. I wore a, as particularly male clothing. In that period, um, AIDS, AIDS hit. I found myself 
less interested in club culture and I want to say frivolous because in the moment it was frivolous. Less involved in the art side of life than in the fact that my world was collapsing and I was seeing friends and my peers were dying. And it wasn't a time to go clubbing. For me, it didn't seem like a time to go clubbing. It seemed like a time to help. And so I became involved in uh, AIDS work, which I did for 18 years. My identity was really more in, more in service than it was in how I expressed myself. I was, I was really kind of there to help take care of people. Once that started to wind down a bit, uh, the AIDS situation, I immediately went back to immediately went back to finding my club and my social identity again. And when, uh, when was that? In uh, around 2000, late 90s, early 2000. Immediately went back into drag and and the club world. I found myself that that was really the most compelling. Without the AIDS. I guess you could say imperative, without the need to be so involved in service, that that became my, the most compelling part of my, my life. Let's spend a little time talking about that, the, the mid, late 80s and 90s when you mm -hmm. were working. What organizations were you working with? I worked with uh, the One Foundation, which is an AIDS awareness organization, and HEAL, the Health Education AIDS Liaison. And what were your roles? And also working a little bit with Community Research Initiative and the Anti-Violence Project, Gay, Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project. I mean, it was all volunteer. With the One Foundation, I was the president and director. President. We did AIDS awareness through the media, and we organized uh, uh, information booths at, in the Gay Pride Parade and the Gay Pride Festival. We did poster campaigns, and uh, we put on programs in um, some of the AIDS residences, the, the Bailey House on Christopher Street and the Maplethorpe Residence. I went to all the educate, you know, educational meetings and group support meetings and support groups and things like that. And so would you say that during that time, your um, gender identity took a back seat? Back seat is a perfect way to describe it. It was like a war time. Yeah. Seemed like a war. I, I, I often say it's kind of graveyard humor, but it was raining men. AIDS was death. Uh, everybody was trying to find a way to do something. It was such a powerful moment that, uh, you know, in a way, this group of people who had just a common sexual or gender or mixed identity had to group together to, to create a, a voice and a presence and a community to combat something that seemed to be targeting this one particular group. So the focus was really on on uh, taking care of, of, the, of what was becoming a community. Mm -hmm. Was not a very social time in, in terms of culture, club culture, or life was serious. How did you make ends meet during that time? I was busy starting, I was starting my own business. I was working part-time for a food distributor. 
doing accounts receivable. At the same time, I was working on the side doing restoration work, woodwork. And um, I had a mentor in restoration for whom I worked, doing mix of things from carpentry, painting, restoration, and I, you know, studying, learning my craft. Then I opened my own business. I discovered very quickly that business was not really my interest as much as craft. And the AIDS crisis was hitting. Uh, I saw all these people who needed another way to live. You know, they're they're being DJs and bartenders, and they were HIV positive, and realized that if they didn't get out of that environment, that they would probably be probably just go down, you know, be in trouble with alcohol and and sex and every other thing that could possibly endanger them. So I started hiring every all loads of people from the community and just to have an alternative way to live so they would have other skills and a healthier environment than the club environment. So I became kind of like a re rehab facility slash business. It wasn't very profitable you know, financially, but it was it was good for the people. When you were learning your craft, when you were starting your business, were you passing as male then? Yes. Do you would you say it, it was easier than maybe if you were presenting uh, as non-binary? Um, or, I mean, uh. you knew, you knew that, that the club culture and people who didn't necessarily fit into the heteronormative binary that has impressed upon us needed a place to work. You know, um, there's a moment when events in the world are so Im impacting and so compelling, which was the AIDS crisis, that you... you, you your personal expression and your needs become very secondary. I mean, if I had to live in a in a potato sack, I would have lived in a potato sack to do what I had to do. It was only when that necessity started to reduce that I started to say, "Hey, what you know? What about me?" You know that that started to come back to me. Even though you weren't, you were able to kind of put aside your own personal expression mm -hmm. during that time, <clears throat> you knew that others were vulnerable. Oh my goodness, yeah. And you provided them a place to work. Yeah. Um, can you describe some of discrimination and challenges that people faced during that time? By... Uh the late 80s, I was doing volunteer work in um, the Bailey House. Where was the Bailey House? It was on Christopher Street near the West Side Highway. I mean, most of the people who I knew then who were trans were escorting. And what did escorting entail at that time? Prostitu it was prostitution. Mm -hmm. With that was drugs. Uh, it was a really marginalized group. The trans community at that time was a very stigmatized, marginalized group. 
you were, they were just at risk in every possible way. There was no support of any sort. Yeah, it was just the most vulnerable group of people. Do you remember any specifics <clears throat> about your work at the Bailey House or anyone in particular whose story touched you? I have an endless, just an ongoing uh, a whole parade of faces that go across my screen. The thing is, is that, you know, there they were all aware that it was, at the time, it was the end of their life. When you got to the Bailey House, you were... I don't know anyone who, who lived. So they were all dying. I mean, the thing that was so amazing about it for me was their sexuality, their gender identity, nothing was important at that time. Reconciliation was the biggest topic. They were all felt that life, they didn't have much more time. And they somehow had to put things right at the end. It was usually with, with mother and father. And uh, sometimes mother and father weren't available. You know, they, they were going to just die, you know, die alone. And I, I was with a lot of people who, who passed on their own, or with, rather with me in St. Vincent's Hospital. But most of them, uh, there was some attempt at reconciling with their parents, you know. I was gay, I, was, I wasn't what you wanted. And, uh, you know, those last days were just, uh, you know, I didn't like that your pants were too tight and that your, you wore your hair and that you were feminine or you were this or you weren't the son that I wanted or the daughter that I wanted. And, and, but I, I love you. Those last, <clears throat> last days were usually about, just about that, that love, you know, and how people's differences got in the way of relationships for years of parents. So much was focused on, no one was interested in talking about vacations and jobs, and it was all about things one thinks of at the end of life. It was a very tough time. These previously muscular, handsome, Men were emaciated and blind, and they weren't interested. Sex wasn't a subject. Just hoping for a little comfort and finding that, you know, hopefully some drug was going to save them. There was also uh, just holding their hands and, and, and hugging them because people were afraid to touch them. Didn't, not much was known, and so much fear. Tough time. Couldn't think a lot about lot about yourself at that time, mm -hmm. if you were. So anyway, I mean, and I, I'm trying to keep my economic life in order. It, it was certainly the most compelling part of my my life. The AIDS situation. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, it's hard to organize in my head at the moment. But bringing all those these characters into my shop, and at one point I had 18 people, all of whom were in some sort of recovery, most of whom were positive. Could they get jobs otherwise? Well, their their lives were out were they were in trouble in some one way or another. 
a number of my performances are based on their lo their lives because they were you know they were the the lawyers who abused crystal meth and were positive and and they they ruined their careers there was a fellow who was had been raped by his father repeatedly when he was a child and couldn't get his life in order and was positive and in and out of addiction and there were those who were uh, working in clubs and the the environment you know was so tempting and as far as sex and drugs and yet they were positive and they knew they needed to stay away from from it if they were to survive you know I said well come on and come on and work for me so I just had a room full of and they were everybody was we were all kind of in the same, you know, of the same, in the same mindset, you know, everybody knew they needed to be in another place, and yet, and 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 they were doing their best to get on, and a lot of uh, scared, scared and kind of endangered people in 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 a in a space. So you, I mean, how do you see yourself? in relation to social and political movements. Um, you're just describing a lot of social advocacy work that you were doing. How is that translated into the 2000s? In, by the early 2000s, the AIDS thing, AIDS situation was quieting down. I started to, uh, what's the word even, come out? I kind of went back to saying, well, okay, now, who, you know, who am I? And uh, started to, I guess you say, come, you know, return to, come back to, come out as uh, gender, somebody with gender questions and issues and How gender queer. I guess it all started when, uh, around the age of 40, yeah. About the age of 40, be, you know, from 40 to 45. So where did you go looking for your community? How Describe your, your new community and into which your, your new identity was able to blossom and birth. My, my workshop was full of people from the, the gay community. I didn't find, I didn't immediately find community. I just started to be my be me to to change my way of dressing and I guess I, I found my I found my first community really with the the black gay and trans community it was where I felt the most comfortable yeah just so many of my friends were black yeah I, I guess I mean I, th I think it was with the black community that that's where I found my my more social connection to gender, you know, gender issues. Where was that? Where would you go? Some of the dance clubs. They were, you know, they, there wasn't, there was Esquilita on 39th Street. And there they were other, in the neighborhood, there were other clubs. And, you know, there would be club night, nights. It wasn't like, uh, most clubs had, on any different night, would be a different thing. So most of the places that I went to were, were black or black and Latin. I found them to be very op very open. 
I just uh, felt my my greatest ease there. Describe what what would happen there. You would go to dance, mostly to dance, a little social to be social. The the first uh, for the first time actually as as we're speaking, I can connect it to my. It's connecting to a lot to a lot of things. My shop was mostly workshop was mostly white, but the AIDS work that I did was I'd say a much broader mix. And when I worked in the prisons, it was also more more black and Latin. So I don't know. I mean, I felt uh, somewhere something because I was doing entertaining and and performance work in prison. There's something about the whole dance world, and it just seems to link up more easily now as I'm looking at it. I hadn't even considered it. So you would go to dance nights dressed. How would you dress? I would, do, I would dress uh, generally in full drag. And did you have a drag persona? How was, how was drag perceived at that time? I actually, uh, I mean, I, I, I would go as... I did go as a mix, but I generally went in, in full drag because gender queer was was always a little more difficult for people to accept. So full drag was easier for you. You were a little you blended in a little more easily. You had a a, a more norm normative role. You'd said earlier that seeing some when you first moved to New York, seeing someone <clears throat> in full drag walking down Christopher mm. Street, for example would raise eyebrows, was Oh, yeah, dangerous. it was, yeah. What about, so in the early 2000s, when you first started dipping your toe? Oh, it was, um, you get used to blocking out a lot of things. You get used to blocking out being called names. You, you, you it becomes normal that you, you, you kind of expect a level of, of mistreatment and abuse. And it becomes like, oh, that old thing. Or, oh, yeah, there's a lot of flies. Or, yeah, it's cold out. People could be tremendously mean. Everybody had a, had a comment. You, you, you wind up putting so much of it aside and, and brushing off so much when people would see you and say, the world doesn't need another clown or something like that. You, you have to not, you had to not care what people thought. For every hundred nasty remarks, somebody would say, oh, I love what you, I love it. You'd have to kind of live off that, because most of it was very, was quite negative. Who were you looking to for inspiration? Where would you get ideas for makeup? Where would you buy makeup from? Gee whiz, inspiration. I don't think... I Was I, it I, on yet? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. <laughs> Was there a visible... Uh, I think the... Uh, probably... Uh, you know, one of my early... Es uh, Esqualita was my... One of my early... Inspirations. I, I, it was my favorite place. Around. And there were queens there that you looked to yeah. and, and got ideas from. Yeah, the drag. A lot of the drag performers there. I liked what they did, and uh, I liked I liked everything about it. It was really, you know, like a, a, a not a, I don't want to say a second home, but 
it was my where I would go, you know, on every Friday or every Saturday. Yeah, I would say that that was my probably my my inspiration. No specific person or anything like that. Not like I didn't have an an, an idol or a hero. Do you remember who was performing there at that time? Angel Sheridan was the host. I don't know if I have my ears straight. There's someone, a performer named Karen Covergirl and Victoria Lace. I'm blanking on the names. Those two were were outstanding. Uh-huh. How did you find out about Escalita? That's on Hell's Kitchen, right? Yeah. Don't remember. How long did you, was it a regular place that you went? <clears throat> Probably went there for a few years maybe around 2000, that neighborhood. Okay. I mostly, uh, you know, I like to experiment just with color and the, it, it, there was a lot of, I mean, it was a large element of fun to it. One of the things that I, maybe it was a pattern that like with, you know, looking, it was only later in my, in my life that I found out from my father that he he saw it, he had seen it coming when I was very young. So a lot of things have been for me looking back. You know, oh, I did this. I didn't know why I was doing this. And later on now I realize why I was doing that. I don't know why, don't know why it was uh, the, the black and Latin community. Do you remember what led to or any a moment that led to you taking the stage? And was your first performance in drag? Yeah, let's see now. My first performance was in drag. I was doing woodworking demonstrations on uh, Breeny Maxwell's cable TV show in drag. How did that come about? I knew... Uh, Ben Sander, who was Breeny Maxwell, he had a cable TV show. He was doing like home decorating. Was this public access TV? What channel was it on? Because this, this was like pre-YouTube, yeah? Yeah. I don't know what, uh, I mean, I don't know. I just have never been connected to television, anything. Cable TV or it was cable TV. That, that's all I really knew about it. What was the name of the show? The Breenie Maxwell Show. Okay. Breenie Maxwell was kind of the Martha Stewart of drag. So it would be home decorating tips and how to make cupcakes for your friends and household tips, things like that. Not, not your, not outrageous drag, you know, lip syncing, anything. Breenie was a very practical, you know, homemaker type. Brini came to my studio to do a, an in, you know, a, a, have a little tour and an interview. I built something. She was decorating her home as part of an ongoing project for the cable show, and I built something for, like, I don't even know what it was for. The, uh, remember what it was for? Maybe it was like for a fireplace or a mock fireplace. I needed a name. I hadn't really been had a public persona. In the world of wood, ebony is the king of woods. So I was doing, since I was doing wood stuff, you know, and trying to put it all together. In the world of wood, ebony was the king of wood. 
and uh, Rosewood was the queen of woods, with that on one side, and on the other side in the black and Latin drag community, there were a lot of woods. Miss Mahogany Wood, Miss Ebony Wood, Miss Cherry Wood. So I decided to put the two together and be Miss Rosewood, which was the queen of woods in the wood family. So I was Rosewood for my for the show. That was how I got the na- how I came up with the name. It put together my world of wood and my world of drag in one one handy mm-hmm. thing. Just by association, you started performing on the show. Yeah. And then when did, how did live performance happen? Well, I was taking dance classes, and so, oh, yeah, I was taking dance classes, and I started to uh, do go-go dancing in clubs, performing, you know, on a platform or, you know, on one of the, as a platform dancer. Yeah, where would you go-go dance? There's the Flamingo East, the Silver Swan, Trying to remember the names, they all pianos. There was a place on 30th Street. Where was uh... 29th Street. There was a place, in fact, just a block away. But the clubs, you know, they they changed owners. They changed names. I can't remember. Can't remember the name the, the names even of some of the places. The Flamingo East was one I was at a lot. Where was the Flamingo East? I think on Third Avenue around 12th Street. First, Second Avenue, Third Avenue. It's a long time now. One club had a striptease competition, and not knowing much about it, I I just I put together a routine and I I, I won. So I began to explore more more about strip striptease, and that took me to burlesque. I uh, one of the women in one of my dance classes I. She said, so you, so you do drag? And uh, I said, you know, that was an interesting introduction. And I said, yes. I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to create, you know, drag striptease. And she said, oh, well, you should meet my friend Dirty Martini. She introduced me to Dirty Martini, who was a burlesque performer at the time. And so she introduced me to Dirty Martini. Uh, Dirty was... Uh, showed me videos of drag striptease from the 50s. Vicki Lynn was in particular one who had, was on some of the videos. So I hadn't even known that it was historic, historically that there was a precedent or that it had been done before. And it turns out there had been a whole kind of drag stripping circuit back uh, in the 50s and 60s. The whole drag striptease thing was was happening in New York, New York clubs. So uh, she helped me choreograph her routine, and for about a year I I did it everywhere I possibly could. It helped me develop more familiarity with the stage and with the performance scene in New York. You know, you become no, you become known. You know, someone invites you to perform and you show up on time. You do your you do your job correctly, and you get another invitation. Will you describe that first routine? Yeah, it was a, a, a kind of glam striptease done to, I don't know the name of the song, instrumental, basic, good basic retro striptease with a feather boa 
and, uh, you know, pieces of clothing that came off. And I had a, a kind of semi-see-through bra with, they, they call them chicken cutlets, which are like uh, silicone, fake silicone, you know, things that you put inside. And it looks reasonably, if you don't look too long or too closely, it looks reasonably like, like breasts. Somewhat imitated uh, an old stripper named Tempest Storm. I, I did that routine for, for about a year every, in every possible place. Was there a reveal <clears throat> in that number? Well, burlesque, you know, the, the reveal is, is that you, you show your breasts usually at the end. And so I showed what was like similar. It looked like I was showing my breasts because the bra was see-through and it was trimmed with sequins. So for a quick reveal and then to run off, it, it looks enough like a reveal. So at that time, your first number, you weren't yet getting into shock territory. No. That was the second one. So after a year, I wanted to try something. I had an idea for something different. How were you received by audiences, just with that first number? The first number was, it was, it was a, re, a, a real education in seeing how different audiences responded to me. When I was doing the striptease in the drag and trans clubs, particularly the trans clubs, they were, uh, in the early 2000s, they were kind of cross-dress, trans, the escort bars and things like that, which was a little different than the regular gay bar where there was drag, because there were men who, more men who were coming because they wanted to meet or have a, have have sex with or a relationship or something with with trans people. Doing striptease there, you were an object of attraction. They they thought you were sexy and they they were they appreciated they enjoyed you at that level. So when you when I would do the same thing in a straight club, you know, burlesque club or whatever, you you weren't you didn't have that you weren't seen that way, you were a freak. So people responded differently to you. You weren't seen as even though you were doing something which you were, had you been female, it would be glamorous. Because you weren't, it was you were a, you were a freak. It started to change my identity, my sense of who I was. The reaction of straight audiences <clears throat> yeah. changed. Okay. So I realized that. Tell me about that. You know, for a woman working in a strip club, a woman working in a strip club, the patrons are there to see a woman in the strip club. People who come to a burlesque show, the early burlesque shows were, there was less of an integration of men and women. It was really about women taking off their tops. That was the kind of retro, but, uh, but that was the, the basis of it. In one type of venue would respond uh, less interested in the entertainment value than of the physic than for physical attraction, and in a lot of the burlesque clubs, the quality of the routines was not as important as the fact that you're going to see someone take their top off. But when you're in a straight club and you're taking your top off and you're not female, then you're a freak. I started to see that for one, I had to be more entertaining because I couldn't rely on attraction. So I had to be funnier, 
or crazier or kookier or something more to be entertaining. Finally, I, I got to the point where I said to myself, well, if you think I'm a freak, I'm going to just give you extra, extra freak. So I started to do more of a parody of, of, a, of a woman or of a female stripper. Or Later, I found out that there were categories that in the world of drag, there was the, the diva and the dame. And the diva was someone who could pass as female. And the dame was somebody who couldn't and would be more of a clown. So I started to do more of the clowny, more clowny stuff that, that people were more comfortable with. It's less threatening. I started to just take it further and further. In my mind, uh, I mean, I, I didn't think I was being shocking. Uh, you know, I, I just I hit a moment where people were thoroughly shocked by what I was doing. And in fact, I debuted my first shock routine at uh, Jane County's uh, an after-party for Jane County, who was a famous transsexual at the time. From then on, that became my, my niche, or my world. You had an early ally and advocate in Dirty Martini. How did the rest of the burlesque world and your evolution in, in shock respond? Dirty was all about glamour. She was uh, she she did some comedic things, but she was mostly about glamour. Burlesque world was kind of happy with me doing glamour and doing funny, funny silly. Uh, but when I got into shocking, everybody was a little uh, not put off. But I was kind of getting into a territory that was unfamiliar. As I continued to become increasing to explore that more and to become more shocking, it started to become problematic. It started to become problematic. Then um, a lot of things happened all kind of all at once. I was becoming increasingly shocking, and people were becoming bothered by it because it was starting to, you know, uh, become like a separate category of performance. There was funny, there was glamorous, and then there was what I was doing, which was shocking. The real dividing line came when, in 2007, when the box opened. All the performers auditioned for the box, and the box didn't want burlesque. And what I was doing had evolved to a point where it was no longer, where they were like, well, that's not really burlesque. And they didn't know exactly what they wanted, they just knew that they didn't want it to be cliche, you know, something cliche. And to them, straight drag or straight burlesque was cliche. So they didn't want to be, they wanted theater, you know, that combined, you know, a kind of sexuality or sexual subjects or nudity or adult subjects with theater. So I had a piece which was, that, that worked. The burlesque people were getting were being were bothered by the fact that uh, my shocking stuff was kind of stealing the show or being the most me the more memorable part of a show. And then at the same time, uh, the box was saying, "Bring it on, do more, 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 more." And at the same time, the Giuliani era was saying, "You know, be uh, we don't want anything." 
the Giuliani era was trying to shut down a lot of the gay bars and to shut down a lot of the places that were edgy or all the backroom parties and a lot of the gay bars where I was doing burlesque, they stopped having me because they, they couldn't do shock. They had to be just as conventional as could be. They had to do very straightforward drag. Places where I was, had worked many, many, many times, they said, well, you know, sorry, we can't keep doing this. You're, we love what you do. It's extreme, but we, we, can't, we can't have it anymore. So the box became the kind of last place where I could just freely explore that whole side of what I wanted to do. So to, very shortly after that, I really just jumped with both feet into it. In the burlesque scene, were you the first or one of the only to be doing um, drag striptease? Uh, certainly in the uh, re-emerging scene in New York, I was the first. I think, in fact, I was the only. In fact, I was the only for a long time. And I don't even think that there's been anyone since who is really doing that. There may be, you know, in some of the new shows out in Bushwick and some of the, the outskirts, there may be somebody doing some something like that, but I was really doing traditional striptease mm -hmm. and drag using, you know, uh, the striptease of the, the past as a model. And what, what were some of the clubs that you were performing at before you went to the box? Well, the Slipper Room was a big one, and that was on the Lower East Side. And the Cutting Room was a big one, and that was on 24th Street. Those were two of my staples. And then there were all the gay bars, all in the, mostly in the East Village, Lower East Side. Uh, a number of floating shows, you know, that had different locate went to, on to different locations. Bowery Poetry Club was a place that hosted a lot of shows. All around, I, I could do easily 10, 10 different places every week. So you were being booked a lot. Oh, I was booked a, a lot. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a lot of shows. I mean, you know, you might do one number. Some nights I would be in three different places. But they were all reasonably in the same neighborhood, so... I could walk or taxi from one one place to the other. Mm -hmm. So what communities are you a part of now? Community. What's a community? If I could say, uh, I'm a part of the box community. The box, because it has continued to be open and, and, and a fixture in the New York nightlife scene, is a kind of rallying point. It's a, a place where we have a very large, a, a regular group from the, of queer kids, club kids, who frequent the, the venue. Yeah, the, the box is a kind of a community. There's, of course, the staff. There's then, because it's been open many years and many people come and, and go, there's employees, past and present, the customers and clients who have come regularly for years, you know, the supporters of it. So there's a kind of, there's a, it's a community. It's, a, it's an organism. I like to call it an organism because it, uh, it has a, a life to it. 
I don't find there to be really what I would call a trans community or a I don't I don't find that there to be much other community many other communities that I I could say are communities now for me. What have been your experiences with healthcare? You're on your own. I have no insurance. Haven't had insurance since um since the I had a little insurance for a little while in the early 80s with a when I had, with one job but I no insurance health care has been my own responsibility when I, I travel back and forth between here in London and in in England you can have gender reassignment paid for by the NHS their their health service national health service here you're on your own fortunately I made enough money between by working very, very hard to be able to afford my surgeries. But otherwise, uh, yeah, most of my friends did it by escorting, by prostitution, because it's so expensive. Or, you know, you can't pay, do it in America. You, you go, I went to Mexico and did it there. It's cheaper. I had one here, you know, the one surgery here. My health care is take care of yourself uh, because no one else is going to do it. Have you ever used things besides Western medicine to help you feel better in your body or your gender? Oh yeah, Western medicine. Western medicine is not a useful thing for me, other than oh, well, I'm gonna step back. There's surgery, which is Western medicine. Surgery has been very helpful for me. <laughs> I'm very grateful for surgery. Uh, but the rest of Western medicine has not been helpful at all. I use uh, acupuncture for any uh, to treat any ailments. Good diet, nutrition, exercise to take care of the rest. Physical therapy for I don't know if physical therapy would fall in the category of Western medicine. Not much relationship to conventional Western medicine. How has spirituality played a role uh, in your overall well-being? Spirituality has played the single most important part of my, my well-being. Because uh, everything starts, you know, you have to start at the top. A pyramid begins with a point and goes and broadens from there. If you're not happy, Surgery is not going to make you happy. If you don't have your priorities in order, you're not going to be happy. If you haven't found a, a nice relationship with who you are and an understanding of what's important in life and where you place things, uh, you're, you're not going to be happy. If you're not happy, you're going to make wrong choices. You'll try to find happiness in things that won't bring you, that won't make you happy. Look for happiness with approval from others. Look for happiness in relationships. Look for happiness in substance, alcohol, drugs. You know, you you, you have to kind of have your you know have your your life in order in some fashion, or you or nothing that you add on will will improve things. When did you find your spirituality? When I was uh, before puberty, I fell in love with uh, religion, uh, Judaism, 
and I wanted to be a rabbi, uh, which was quite funny because uh, my parents were so sweet about it. They said uh, they knew they they knew they knew what was going on way before I did, and they were like, you know, honey, we love you, but you're it's just not going to work. And I didn't understand why at the time. Uh, puberty hit, and then it all went out the window. So I did find it then, you know. But I, I, it wasn't one that I could that could carry me through what was coming. Through the '80s, middle '80s, I started to look around for teachers and to uh, experience different um, modalities or different paths of spirituality. I went to hear all the different teachers and lecturers on Zen, on yoga, on all different traditions. And I began meditating. Actually, I began meditating in the late 70s. Continued that through the 80s irregularly. But then uh, I met different teachers in the middle 80s. Then in 1986, I met a teacher that I fell in love with, began to follow his teachings from 1986 on. And uh, he continues to be my teacher. It's not a, um, you must do this, you have to do that kind of thing. There are practices. And uh, yeah, doing that now for 32 years. But uh, it, it's so helpful. You have to have a kind of inner equilibrium in any kind of transitional transition, or you're, you're apt to go too far in one direction too easily. I, I watch so many of the kids, the trans kids, they get so involved in they get involved in escorting to pay for their surgeries, and they lose sight of what they're, what they're doing it for. You know, if you wanted to be a writer, or you wanted to be an artist, and you get involved in your transition, and you, you wind up just being, being an escort instead of being an artist. So, did you... You know, were you transitioning because your your life would be better as a woman or as a man? Or did you transition to become an escort? And in most cases, they they lose sight of what it was that they were trying to do. So you feel that your, your spirituality and the teachings of this person have really kept you grounded oh, and yeah. on, on path? <clears throat> yeah. So. You know... Uh, feeling an inner female identity and then realizing for myself by degree that I would feel more comfortable in the world as female, presenting as female, it's something that could easily have gone gone too far or, or wrong or, or any, any, anything. Because things get thrown at you, offers get thrown at you. I mean, the, the possibility to prostitute is 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 there all the time every cosmetic procedure and i, I mean uh, i'm sorry what 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 was what was that how do you feel uh the teachings have kept you on oh. on your path it just priorities i mean what makes me happy is art 
so, and I know that, I know that so well, that if somebody, my, my happiness is not based on whether or not I've had no one realize that I was, had been born male in the course of my day. For some people, some of my friends, if somebody find, realizes says, and says, hey, were you, are you trans? Their, their day is ruined. And for me, it's just, that's sad because your whole identity is wrapped up in, in did, you, did you pass? And for me, it's nice, but the, my identity is wrapped up is, was I artful? That's, uh, that's been the value, the value of it. It's really kept me, you know, on, the, on, a, on a road of the, that makes me happy. A lot of my friends, you know, they're, they're, they get wrapped up in shopping and, uh, and, and just all things that are not places where they'll be, be hap find happiness. Tell me a time when you felt seen. Felt seen. Well, uh, it's interesting. I, 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 like the, I like the question because uh, it's a smart question. I felt seen when I started to dress in mixed gender as mixed mixed gendered. I, looking back, I would say I was visually aggressive. That was the first time I, in my life I felt seen. It was the first time I stood out visually. After, because uh, I've made, I've since now tried not to be seen. I tried to be, I, I didn't try to be seen, I just, I, I decided, what's the word? Not to hide, and uh, began to dress in mixed, as in mixed genders. And then at a certain point, I decided to not be seen, and to dress as one gender. So you felt most seen, or, I mean, there's also the interpretation of understood. Well, you know, <clears throat> um, if you're in a choir and you sing twice as loud as everybody else, you're heard. If you're singing at the same volume as everybody else, you're not heard. You're one of, you're just part of a group of voices. So if you dress like everybody else, you're not seen. That's how I'm placing your question. Mm -hmm. If you're if you if you're walking down the street and people say that's a guy, that's a girl, you're not seen. But if if you are something other than what they're seeing, you're seen. So, is that a good way to interpret the question? Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, I think I think to dig deeper into it, maybe seen for. There's the physical presentation and there's the emotional life. And so I think, what about when you, a time when you felt seen for how you felt inside, but maybe not what people might at a glance physically understand? What someone, when someone saw through the presentation 
and saw you for the complexity that you are? Well, you know, part of this, I mean, part of my, what's in, made my, uh, working backwards a little bit, when I was seen, as I described, when I dressed in mixed gender, I was attacked verbally and physically many, many times. It wasn't, it was not a safe time. And I was also, I was younger, I was stronger, and I got to a point where friends of mine said, you know, Rose, uh, you worry us because uh, we, we see how, how frequently you're attacked, verbally or physically. You, you really should do something to be safer because you have your art, you have a place to do your art, and you are putting yourself unnecessarily in danger. I, I heard them. I mean, I, I, what they, were, they were sincere. It wasn't, they weren't, it was concern as, as a friend. And I began to look at that, and I said, well, okay, you know, uh, not every ballerina walks around with leg warmers on. You know, they, they put on, they, they get to where they dance, they put on their dance clothes, and then when they go out on the street, they do their best to just look like anyone else on the street. It made sense to me to, to find a, a safer way to, to live. There was a great pleasure for me in trying to make my outer appearance match the complexity that I felt of who I was. It was wonderful. It was very creative. It felt like a type of performance in and of itself. In, f in fact, it, it really was. I mean, I was trying to visually represent something in, that was emotional and internal, as opposed to uh, doing my best not to be seen. So that it was a creative period, and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful time, but it came with problems. And now that I have a, 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 a platform for my expression, I'm, it it's, makes more sense for me to be protective of that. Is there anything you want to add? Hmm. <laughs> No, I th think that's good. Thank you. Will do. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs>